0: Lord God, we thank you so much that you have chosen to speak to your world. We ask that you'd help us to understand what you've said this morning and to be obedient to it. Amen. Uh, We are in the book of Micah, Micah being a prophet to the ancient kingdoms of Israel and to Judah. In about the years 742 BC and in between around 687, he was somewhere in those days before Jesus. Um, And it's on page 932 of your Bibles, and and it'll help if you have them out. And for anyone who was pleased with a short reading, I'm afraid that we're also going to deal with the first seven verses as well. That was my fault. I didn't communicate that to Alan. Um, So if anyone's looking forward to a nice short sermon, hard luck, I think. (laughs) Uh, A word or two on prophecy before we begin, to make sure we're all starting on the same page. Because despite what we might think about their name, the prophets actually spent very little time actually predicting the future. Uh, Their role was to speak God's word into a particular situation, which did sometimes involve predicting the future. Because God's aim in speaking through the prophets wasn't to give us a calendar of events we could tick off as we got close to uh, God finishing his work in the world. Rather, God's aim through speaking through the prophets, was to enforce the covenant. It was to enforce the agreement that God made with Israel that he should be their God and that they should be his people. So as we start thinking and start reading Micah, we should begin by thinking of him as a covenant enforcer. Think of him with a little policeman's hat on. He was an ordinary man inspired by God, calling Israel to live out the responsibilities of relationship with God. He was a covenant enforcer. And last week, we saw how Israel were failing in their responsibilities of relationship with God. We saw that, that socially, they were, there was injustice in the land, and religiously, they were worshipping all sorts of other gods. And this week, however, we're going to see that these social injustices, the social sins of Israel, were propped up by a perverted religious system that taught the grace of God well, it just gives us license to do whatever we want, doesn't it? So we're going to see the grace of God actually is the basis of our obedience today. So we're going to start by looking at three verses one to four, which are the social sins of Israel. Um, Israel and Judah, before, just before Micah started uh, his prof- prophetic career, had recently experienced about 50, 60 years of massive prosperity. You can think in terms of Rockefeller's America or modern-day China. Um, there was no danger, in other words, of Israel losing its AAA rating. They were really booming economically. But despite these good appearances, uh, the two kingdoms, which there were Israel in the north and Judah in the south, were in decay religiously and socially. Because this economic growth brought along with it a large divide between the rich people and the poor people. And the rich exploited the poor, which we're going to see in three, to 4 And corruption throughout the land became rife, which we'll see in 3 verse 11. But despite their sin, both kingdoms believed that because God was faithful, which he is, that their behavior was irrelevant. So long as they kept doing the right sacrifices at the right time, they believed that God would always uphold them. And that's the religious perversion we're going to look at later. And Micah's contemporary in the capital city, another prophet called Isaiah, had a lot to say about that one. But Micah, he didn't move so easily as Isaiah amongst the nation's elite. Because Micah was a prophet from amongst the poor people. He would have seen with his own eyes some of the injustices that were done on his people. And as Micah, the prophet from the poor, began his ministry, there is this uncomfortable sort of dissonance. Uh, Israel and Judah may be strong and prosperous, they may be confident about the future, but inwardly they're rotten. And they're beyond curing, and the the judgments of God in the nation of Assyria is starting to loom large on the horizon. Only 20 years after Micah started his prophetic career, the northern kingdom, Israel, would be gone. And so in in 3, 1 to 4, which we'll read in a minute, Micah furiously criticizes the social wrongs in Judah. And then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice, you who hate good, and love evil. Um, Central to this criticism is this word that we have translated here as justice. And this word in Micah's prophecy keeps coming up in pulses. And this this is a part of his prophecy where this word is a big deal. We'll see it in 3 verse 1, 3 verse 9, and then later in the prophecy we see it in 6 verse 8, 7 verse 4, 7 verse 9. This is a word he keeps on using. And it's one of those big Bible words. It's one of those ones where the origi- it would have carried a huge amount of meaning and significance for the first hearers. Um, kind of like redemption for Christians or best in the world for England's cricket team. It's not an empty term. It's loaded. It, and it does mean justice, but it means it in the kind of way that we might say uh, justice has been done. It's not a static word. It's active. It's an action that you do. It is about doing that which God has said is right. Uh, For example, in part of God's law, in Deuteronomy 15.4, he says, there there is to be no poor in Israel. Therefore, doing what is right is being generous to ensure there are no poor in Israel. Uh, That's Deuteronomy 15.7-8. This kind of justice, then, is an action taken to make sure things are right. And this is the touchstone of Micah's ministry. He's a covenant enforcer calling God's people to do that which God has said is right, to live in line with God's will. So should you not know justice, on to verse 2, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people, the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh and strip off their skin. You see, we'll come to that metaphor in a little bit, but the nation's leaders had the job of upholding that which is right. But part of the problem is that these leaders have turned from that which is good and are continually loving evil. If you're interested, the verb for loving evil there is a continuous verb denoting an ongoing action. In other words, this isn't just an occasional flirtation with evil from the nation's leaders. This is a full-blown Hollywood love affair with it. They're going on loving evil and turning from that which is good. And the meat of the accusation is in that lengthy metaphor of flesh, who tear the flesh from uh, their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin. It's a grotesque picture, isn't it? But it's being used as a metaphor that the original hearers, which is how we've got to try and tune in and understand it, uh, would have spoken very clearly of social exploitation. Uh, the, the, the word for tear there, a gazelle, appears elsewhere in scripture and when it does it turns up in Isaiah 61 verse 8 and in the, in the NIV here it's translated as theft same word it's about social injustice it's about taking from other people exploiting the poor so to original hero this would have been very clearly about exploitation it's similar to us um, getting back in the car after filling up with petrol and saying I've been squeezed dry it's that kind of, it's that kind of language we're in And 2 verse 2 tells us what this exploitation would have looked like. It seems that the rich were exploiting the poor by taking the land from them to add to their own wallets. The story of Naboth's vineyard wasn't unique. That was going on in Israel. Nor was the banking crisis recently, or the expenses scandal. All the same idea of those in authority exploiting the rest for their own gain. That's the kind of language we're in. And this strikes at the very heart of what godly leadership is about, doesn't it? Because it's the role of the powerful to defend the least powerful, because that's what God is like, Isaiah 57:15, And God doesn't let this failure lie. 3 verse 4. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, the Lord will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. Just as the rulers didn't listen to the pleas of the oppressed poor, so God isn't going to listen to them. It's the retributive justice of God, as we saw last week. And here Micah is speaking God's words loud and clear into a situation. God has noticed injustice and he cares about how his people treat one another. If you see, true relationship with God always carries with it a commitment to right living. And here Micah, the covenant enforcer, is calling the covenant people of Israel, the agreement people of Israel, to live out their responsibilities as a society. Now, by way of applying this, we've got to start by learning one fact about God. God cares that we act rightly to one another. Therefore, it follows, it is impossible to claim private relationship with God while ignoring how we relate to other people. It's just not on. It's not a coherent position for the God of the Bible. Relationship with God extends beyond your living room. It has to. Relating rightly to other people is part of being in a relationship with God. Uh, because God has ascribed value to it here. What more do you need? Now this fact was brought home, brought home to me over recent weeks. So I'm doing a little bit of care work over the summer. And the other night I was coming to the end of a long day. Going up to the front door knocking. And I thought, if I can just get through this cool quickly. I can get back and watch House. Which is brilliant, by the way, if you've ever seen it. Um, but then I remembered what God had revealed about himself in this passage here. And I thought, you rat... You do the job properly. Because God has ascribed value to how we treat one another. And like Israel, our model for rightness of relationships is God. First, and most obviously for us, for that's why we're here, is the person and work of God the Son, Jesus Christ, who humbled himself to death on the cross for the forgiveness of the many. That's the wonderful grace of God. And it's also the Jesus whom we're called to imitate. Or or secondly, do we ever think of God the Trinity as our model? Because we should, it's a brilliant model. For each member of the Trinity is passionately concerned with glorifying the other. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son obeys the Father. The Spirit can't stop talking about the Son, and he communicates the presence of the Father and the Son to the believer. They're always putting the attention on somebody else, aren't they? The God of the Bible is relentlessly other-centred. And we as God's people have got to be like him. This makes looking out for number one, not caring who we tread on so long as we're okay, just like these rich rulers were doing, a very odd thing. And the lousy thing about it, that is only the strongest win. But it's at the heart of the human nature to be self-centered. The rulers of Israel expressed it by exploiting the poor. Our modern ways, uh, our modern ways, I was listening to a radio program this week, which celebrated marriages breaking up because one part of the marriage didn't give the other what they felt they needed. And that is so far off key with the heart of God of the Bible, I don't know where to begin. Because if you go into any relationship, if we as God's people go into any relationship in church, as a parent, or as a sibling, or an employer, or an employee, employee, thinking, what can I extract from this person and simply, we're not in line with the heart of the God of the Bible and we've got to change quick. And this has implications right the, way down, right the way down the line for the way we live in family, in church, and work. See, who did the dishes last night? has got to be irrelevant when you're other-centered. How much money you can get for the smallest amount of work is a non-equation when you're looking to fulfill your responsibilities to the other. So we've got to get in line with the heart of the God of Scripture. And if in doubt... The benchmark is the other-centred work of Jesus Christ. Because as we've been shown in these verses here, God cares that we act rightly to one another and that we don't exploit one another. I'm going to have to speed up as we go through the rest of the verses. But what was this perversion that allowed these social injustices to be propped up? Well, in 3 verse 5, we're given insight into the professional prophets of of Jerusalem's temple. And it's no great surprise that they're not all that hot, is it? Um, I'm going to read from the Revised English Bible because I think that puts it most simply. Uh, The prophets who promise prosperity in return for food but declare war against those who give them nothing to eat. You see, these prophets in Jerusalem were just as corrupt as everyone else. What comes out of their mouths seems to me to be thoroughly dependent on what someone puts into it. If they get given... Uh, food from someone, they give them a nice prophecy. And again, we see the retributive justice of God as he removes the prophetic offices, six and seven, from those who abused them. You see, even the religious activity going on in Israel and Judah was complete garbage. And it was complete garbage because there's no sign whatsoever that all their busy religiosity had any impact on everyday life whatsoever. And this idea is preparing us for verses 8 to 12, where the nation's rottenness is exposed even further. Uh, 3 verse 8, Micah, filled with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, declares to Israel their sin. Verse 9, they have hated and distorted that which is right, and by their oppressive exploitation, verse 10, they've built up the city. And their corruption, verse 11, leaves no room for justice to the poor. It's quite a bleak picture, isn't it? Everything that could go wrong is going wrong. Everyone who's in a position of responsibility is exploiting it for their own gain, and it doesn't matter who they tread on to get what they need. And despite all this, 3 verse 11, the last sentence, they have the gall to lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. With one hand they throttle the people of God and squeeze everything they can out of them. And with the other, they piously lean on God and express their hope in his faithfulness. And if we look at the detail, it gets worse. They use the covenant formula of God, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, and the Lord being amongst his people. But they hardly think it relevant that they've constantly, they've constantly hated justice, continually been flying off with evil, distorting what is right, They've made a convenience out of God's grace to make a cushion to endorse whatever they want to do. They think that because God is faithful, they can do whatever they like. But what a bombshell 3 verse 12 must have been. Jerusalem, the holy city, the symbol of all, all their all the worldly security, well, that's just going to become rubble. The temple, the symbol of God with Israel, synonymous with divine favor, is going to become little more than a mound covered in trees. You see, Israel, the problem was they thought God's favor was simply in the nature of things. They thought they had a trump card they could pull out of their sleeve every time they got in a bit of trouble. Meaning, well, therefore we can live however we want, can't we? They were mistaken. Because God will not be made into a convenience for sin. God's judgment will fall on sinners. And no amount of piety or religious busyness can stop that. Only faith in Jesus Christ, that's the only hope we have. But what have they done? It's not all that sophisticated, is it? We try to do it every day. They've grasped hold of the love of God, but they've rejected his lordship. They've taken the benefits of relationship with God, but they've rejected the responsibility. It's not rocket science, is it? It's just not very sensible or coherent. It won't wash with the God of the Bible to take that view. Because there is no possible relationship with God that doesn't translate itself into right living. And as we move into the last couple of minutes, we'll just think about how we can apply this. As the people of Israel accepted the love of God but rejected his lordship, we've got to be aware of how we can be tempted to do the same. Because we're no better than them, really. We're just as fruitful for, doing, for thinking up ways to do bad things. And we must hear Micah's call to a more coherent, a more sensible, a more biblical faith that translates itself into right living. And when we get here, there's a great big elephant in the room, isn't there? Because we are justified by faith. We are at peace with God, not by our own merits, but on the basis of Jesus' perfect life accredited to us and his sacrificial death died on our behalf. That's the wonderful news of the gospel and the grace of God, the free gift of good relationship with Him that He gives us. But how quickly we can take that message of grace and transform it into an ethical cul de sac. We're so prone to accepting the love of God but to reject His Lordship. Yes, we've got to lean on the grace of God. We've got to cast all our hopes, not on what we can do, not on our performance but on the provision for for salvation that's been made for us in Jesus. There is no hope outside Jesus, and we've got to trust only in what he has done. But Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ have put to death the lower nature with its passions and desires. Those who are saved by Christ have died to the old to live a new life, which is just what we've done in baptism. Dying to the old to live a new life in Christ. It's therefore incoherent for us to claim faith in Christ and let sin dominate us. It doesn't mean we'll never sin, but it does mean we can't unconditionally surrender to sin anymore. Now we've come under the lordship of God and not the lordship of sin. A true, relation, a true acceptance of the grace of God has got to be shown by the way we live. Okay, I'm going to, I'm, we're going to draw to an end there. Um, but we've got to keep in our minds that in this passage... The covenant in, through the covenant enforcer, Micah, God is calling Israel and Judah to respond in the right way to the grace of God. And that's a message that can be moved forward to our time so powerfully. We've got to respond in the right way to the grace of God. We don't step outside of the grace of God, for the grace of God is all we have. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is the only thing we have. But we've got to respond in grateful but faulty obedience to it. So let's pray as we finish. Um. Lord God, we thank you so much for your wonderful grace for us and your wonderful grace on us. We thank you so much that you love us, that while we were sinning against you, in Jesus you died for us. We ask that you would help us to not use that message of grace as a means to do whatever we want, but a means to obey you. Please help us, Lord, to understand this message uh, given to Israel from Micah, and help us to make it, to help us to bring us to clo- help, help us to understand it so that it will bring us to closer relationship and obedience to you. Amen.